This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see dead All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go! You want me to go f***ing trash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Hello, listeners. I'm filmmaker Craig Anderson, and welcome to Film vs. Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor? In this inaugural episode, we discuss two very different films. One, a groundbreaking American horror film born out of the independent film movement of the 1970s, and the other, a sophisticated black comedy from contemporary South Korea. Both films deal with class and feature moments of shocking brutality, yet one is deliberate and designed, and the other raw and unhinged. Joining me today are my two best friends from high school, film fan and chainsaw enthusiast, Herschel Isaacs. Hi Craig, hi Bruce. I'm really, really excited for this first episode. And also with him is his identical twin brother, the Associate Professor of Film at the University of Sydney, Dr. Bruce Isaacs. Hey guys, I can't believe we've made it to episode one. (laughs) Now we grew up in the sprawling suburbs of Western Sydney and spent all of our free time watching movies. Each episode, we're going to do a shout-out to one of the institutions that made us love film, like the video stores and the cinemas at Mount Druid and a whole bunch of random places that got us into movies. But today, because this is our first episode, I thought it would be good if we just sort of described how we know each other, how we grew up mm. in, in, in the western suburbs, and what what got us into loving movies and why we're doing this podcast, guys. You kick it off, Herschel. All right, so I think... Like from my perspective, when I think of the number of movies that we watched and what we were thinking, like in high school, late primary school into high school, we spent so much time together. And if you think what was right in the middle of it, it was the movies that we were interested in. We used to talk about movies. We'd go to the movies. When we had free time, we'd go and watch movies. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was thinking about us starting today, something that jumps out at me a lot is I remember a conversation the three of us had uh, I don't. This this is going to be like something like 1991 or something. Remember when Die Hard 2 was coming out and it was everyone, it was the biggest thing everyone was talking mm-hmm. about. And I remember the three of us talked about well, if we were making Die Hard 2, how would you better the John McClane jump off the building in number one? Like where would you set it? Like would you set it on a boat and then speed set the movie <laughs> yeah. on a boat, uh-huh. or would you? Set and I it love that those sorts of conversations actually meant something to us. Yeah. To other people, it might have been geeky. Or just sad. Well, I think people thought but we, to we, us we were it was nuts, meaningful. Right? And I mean, that's the th- thing I really love and remember so vividly after we commenced planning for this podcast, which mm. took a bit of time, was that after the first couple of planning meetings and a shout out to the Matinee Cafe in Maracle, which is where we did all sure. our planning. Um, Charles and Matinee. We, oh, okay. we told each other always, wow, this has become a fantastic thing in our lives. Well, and it's, it's know, become a part of my own film work. It's, well, it's true. We, and a lot of us here are into film work, right? Yeah. You are an academic. Yeah. You're a massive... W- w- let me go back. We met in year four, right? Mm. In, in, in a... In a, in a a school called St. Clair Public School. St. Clair is the name of the suburb we grew up in, um, and it sits between St. Mary's and Mount Druid in western suburbs of Sydney. Um, for people who are not from Sydney or New South Wales, 
that's kind of a sprawling suburban, little bit, but kind of uh, low socio, low socio, yeah. and low, low, a low sense of like class relationship to the city. Oh, we had no you know, the city divide between us and and which we're going to actually these that, films that, are great. That, for I that. was just going to say that. Yeah, it's it's absolutely perfect that we're talking about Parasite and Texas Chainsaw. Because that concept of identity is something that we were trying to fit in, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where do we but belong? Personal identity and class. Yeah. yeah. Because there's no way the three of us can eradicate the idea of class from our identities. It's so hardwired in us, I think. So that's the reason we wanted to, you know, do Texas and, 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 and Parasite. Yeah. Because it's essentially about class. And we're a bunch of communists. <laughs> well, I mean, I was just going to say, I find class to be so important. It's cost me a lot of friendships and relationships. <laughs> Well, hey, wait, can it's I say weird, one quick memory? Yeah, so, on. oh, and then we'll throw over to Anne Portendale yeah, yeah. as a professor. And so oh. <laughs> yeah. um, no, what I wanted to say, uh, Herschel's memory about the three of us also lays over memories I have of our childhood in South Africa. Herschel so and I grew up explain. as coloured yeah. children in South Africa. Right, in so Cape we were Town. a lower yeah. socioeconomic family. But then ethnically and racially, we were the underclass. Mm. And mysteriously because it was a big black market uh, amongst sort of black and colored communities. My dad was able to secure a whole bunch of beta videotapes of movies. Through Uncle Sonny. Uncle so Sonny was a bootlegger, oh, right. was, I should say. We had an Uncle Sonny, and he had these movies, and he would give them to my dad. But they were um, unusual uh, fringe movies. So, you, you know, we weren't watching Fellini. Right, we, we, were, we were watching Look, Bruce, Uncle Zebra Sunny, Force. Uncle Sonny didn't trade in Fellini, let's yeah. put it that way. Uncle Sonny didn't know who the hell Fellini was. Well, what is he trading in then? What well, okay, well, he did well, have a kind of this. ring of kind of uh, a, 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 a subsidiary porn thing going. <laughs> no, this is true. No, no, it's no, absolutely true. Our family awesome. didn't. Our family didn't participate we didn't in the porn market. We didn't produce porn, sure, and didn't participate in the porn market. Sorry, but Uncle Sonny was did. a producer. No, no, no. We're saying he wasn't a producer. Oh right, no, he but he a, had he a, a distributor. He wasn't a. He was a distributor. <laughs> he was a black market colored distributor <laughs> in Cape Town, South Africa, around about the late uh, mid to late 1980s. Okay. But the thing I wanted to say was what what Herschel and I inherited because we're twins. We grew up together, and for anyone who's listening as a twin, you know what that's like. Um, you share the experience of movies, if that's something your family does. And our mum was such a huge fan of movies. Mm -hmm. And the two big memories I have related to today's episode is one, my dad, oh, Herschel, we were talking about this on the way in, that dad had a copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. He just had a beta copy of it. I mean, again, Uncle Sonny, Sonny, right? And here's the thing, now my parents were incredibly... Uh, you know, very progressive in terms of what they'd let Bruce and I watch. Mm-hmm. So um, in South Africa, South Africa is a very religious country, uh, you know, spe- compared to Australia. Even when we arrived in Australia, completely non-secular compared. And we had a copy of The Exorcist and we had Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And Bruce and I s- snuck in, like, in the doorway to peek in. And I remember us seeing that famous scene in The Exorcist where Linda Blair... You know, bites into the into the priest's groin in yeah, the Exorcist, yeah, yeah. and that still freaks me out to this day when yeah, I see that yeah. movie. But it's it's that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I that. should say I grew up in a Christian household as well, yeah. an Anglican boy. From we all the, shared that actually. Yeah, kind of we fundamentalist all had Christian church on household. Sundays, you yeah. know, and so Sunday we, school. We had a lot. So of course, Exorcist for me was one of the scariest films mm. when I finally saw it. My parents were very conservative; they wouldn't let me watch any R-rated films till I was 18. So your experience is massively different to us well, in that, that, my in that time, context, Well, my time, you know, we would go to the libraries at lunch, like mm. the absolute legends that we were, <laughs> and I would be reading books about movies that I couldn't watch, and I was yeah. so excited to see transgressive and horror. And, so it's so you know. interesting because we were the opposite because one of the films, uh, and in some ways this is kind of coded the, the work that I do, and I've grown up with it. You know, mm. I... 
one of the films that Uncle Sonny gave us was the original, I Spit in Your Grave. No, yeah, wow. exactly, and, exactly. True. You know, that's a film that I think today most people wouldn't know about. You'd know about the remake, but people mm. didn't. So we had that on beta, and Hershey and I watched that. Well, that was a video nasty as well. Absolutely. So, but but South Africa again, things were not regulated as they are in Australia. Yeah. So the idea of video nasties, well, there were just black market things circulating, and we just had access to all of it. So Hirsch and I, you know, in in a sort of strange way, were cine literate, but only in the area of B cinema and genre. We should say we grew up uh, together. We went to high school together. Our, our school was a bit. Povo, we tried our best. Um, you two, one of you was the Ducks of the School. Herschel. Right? Herschel. I yeah. Can't, yeah. And then um, we separated. You went to ANU, Canberra University. Oh, to ANU, yeah. You went to the fancy inner city ones. I stayed at Western Suburbs because there was an acting and theatre degree I could get into. Yeah. My, TR, my um, numbers were terrible out of high yeah. school. And so we've all then just sort of found ourselves again in a situation where you're a professor of film. <laughs> Uh, I wish I'm associate professor. Okay, I'm so sorry. Apologies, (laughs) professors. The the thing that I've loved about this podcast and the development of it is, yes, I'm an academic and I'm a scholar and I publish on things. If you're Mm -hmm. interested, you can get The Art of Pure Cinema, Hitchcock and its imitators now from Oxford University Press. Um, But all the work that I do as a scholar, to be honest, has become way more vivid and invigorated through our discussions. So the only reason I'm a film scholar mm. is because we were movie fans well, first. I, I mean, didn't come to this as a kind of natural-born scholar. Not at all. I'm sure. just a film lover. We're, and discussing film was what we did as yes. kids growing up. And I, my compulsion turned into collecting 10,000 videotapes. I had a warehouse uh, up until very recently where I kept the 10,000 tapes in genre, which is bigger than most video stores yeah. were. You're a kind of known quantity when it comes to this kind of VHS collection. People know that this is your significant yeah, in terms of the collection. Yeah, I've got some social media yeah, following yeah, yeah. and people know about it and they'll ask for things. And I've scanned all the covers now and I have yeah. a collection of those scans. And I just sort of have learned a lot by driving to video stores around the country and buying them out as they yeah. were finally. Because mm. I'm a filmmaker and TV producer. I make uh, you know, different, mostly comedy or documentary. And uh, I've just sort of been lucky that I've spent all my money on videotape instead of <laughs> house instead or of a, a real life or <laughs> happiness. You know, really you got no job. You got no. You got no. You got no hey, partner. Yeah. So the losing you continues. Any, any reason for getting up in the morning? <laughs> No, but having said that, I just want to say that one of the things that makes a lot of sense to me here, mm. and we share something in common, is that, you know, there was always a sequence where we loved film before we ended up doing anything else. So that's why I think film permeates what we do. Yeah, like I sure. work in Uni or Sydney Library, like a shout out to all those people, lovely people and everything. I work with communication and, and engagement and, and management, but everything that I bring to what I do I'm, I'm probably at my happiest when I do think about how do you creatively engage with people like that. And if you look at the, like the medium of film, like what else is there that can reach people in that way, I think? Yeah. This is something that we shared and coming back together, we, we just tapped into something that's always existed yeah. with us, I think. I think that's so true because it's the quintessential medium, I think, of the 20th century. Yeah. That's our century. You know, the generations now, the 21st century will be their century, but like, we're the people that inhabited... The, the crisis when television came, the way cinema evolves through and the you independent two are also, you, You're book readers, and I'm not a book reader, but yeah. I believe in oral tradition and yeah. oral culture. Yeah. And I do think film is so aligned with being able to just express yourself without having to write it down first a lot of the time. Oh, absolutely. You know, but also so films that, about visual sensibilities. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think this is something that whenever I teach film studies, I'm shocked at how many students implicitly see movies as stories. 
and they forget, hang on a second, these things are images. Yeah. Images have a certain kind of compositional rationale and we don't talk about that stuff, right? Yeah. And I think the 20th century was also the, the century which we, we came to be obsessed with images and that just, you know, and that has now just spiraled, right? So let me just say, this is the hook of the show, films that you probably wouldn't expect to necessarily be compared. And mm. sometimes we want to do two different classes of film, a high art film and a, a low art film or a trashy film and, a, and a, an Oscar winner. And today is a perfect example of that. I mean, even though Texas Chainsaw now in the lexicon of world cinema has become quite important and, and influential, it was still considered as a B-grade trashy film Absolutely. when it came out. You know, and Parasite very low has budget. always been known as mm. the highest of, you know, fanciness. Mm. One thing I want to yeah. say is I think what's going to distinguish the podcast a bit is one, that the three of us bring this sort of sense of rapport and having a collective memory. And I think that gives well, like, that's us a bit of juice, fun thing. Right? We saw movies together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about Absolutely. a kind of collective We've audience. Got the shared, we got the shared history. We saw Schindler's List in yeah. cinema twice together. <laughs> <laughs> We're kind of psychos. I know, Schindler's know? List. We cried both times, man. <laughs> I think that the conversations that we have are going to be interesting. I think at mm -hmm. times they're going to be challenging. And they're going to be a little bit unexpected, a little bit surprising. And I think that's what's going yeah. to keep it really cool. I definitely think also some of the things that the three of us often talk about that is missing sometimes in the world of film podcasts mm -hmm. is a kind of engagement with what film is. Like, yes, we love movies, but there's so much just fandom in podcasts. Yeah. This is also about, all right, let's talk about what is it that makes this important? What is it that makes it politically significant well, or that's, historically that's significant? That's where you're coming in because you're the, you've got that experience in academia and, and cultural Yeah, but to an extent, all of us, oh, yeah, films sure. mean more to us but than, say... But I've got uh, that behind-the-scenes stuff. So yeah, I hear a yeah. lot of stories about filmmaking. I kind of want to position myself as somewhere between both of you or mm. bring in a perspective that that's going to be different as well. So all three of us mm, have yeah. something a little bit different to contribute. And I think that makes Definitely. for interesting conversation. Yeah, and I think we're also... As we grew up in a, in an area where, don't forget, the year we were in high school, in our final year, there was that Daily Telegraph put the Mount Road High School, one of the suburbs yeah. next door, the dumbest school in the state. The headline was something like the school that you know, the failed uh, us and, and the Ducks got 47 point something. Yeah, yeah, like and, a and horrible I just remember result. all three of us were personally... Yeah, because it's like shaming us. It's like, what, yeah. what future does but anyone also, in that school it have? Was, you know, it was the obnoxiousness of class shoved down your throat yeah. when you lived in that place. You so know? one of the things is we gravitated to films that of all varieties as well. Like, mm. we didn't have anyone telling us not to watch certain types of film. We love them all. Well, let's move on with our podcast. Uh, we're going to try and uh, we're going to say which one we prefer. I'm going to put that to you each time. Okay. We might not have a favorite. The, the yeah. exercise is that what the joy is, is yeah. discussing them side by mm. side. But I think sometimes I might say which is better. And, and the other thing is have to say. our argument that looking at films together is a different experience to looking at one film in isolation. Mm -hmm. Like films reveal things about other films. And that's always going to be our motivation. We're, think, we're saying to you, you put these two together something will be revealing about both of them to you. And another really cool thing yeah. is when you put two films together like this, or in any episode that we do, what we hope that they'll do is they'll actually raise all sorts of other questions that lead you onto other films and other, mm. and other ideas as well. Well, I think we will just not be able to help but reference lots of other films. I mean, films that's something go, that's going to yeah. happen. We will re yeah. reference copious So here's the films. deal with spoilers. We are going to spoil these two films. So if you haven't seen them, you should watch them because we're going to discuss the ending and everything about them. Mm. But the films that pop up along the way will do our very best not to spoil those films. But we will 100% recommend those films. All right. Let's move on. Great. Take one. 
First up on today's show, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1974. Austin native Toby Hooper had already completed his first feature called Eggshells, which was a very low-budget experimental film about a bunch of hippies finding a vortex in their basement. That film was made in 1969, the same year that Easy Rider was making waves through mainstream cinema. Four years later, and Hooper made the slightly higher-budgeted film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The movie tells the story of a group of five college-age kids who are driving to visit the abandoned house that two of them grew up in. Along the way, they meet a crazed hitchhiker, a chainsaw-wielding maniac, and a decaying patriarch. The kids are murdered one by one until the final girl is left with a terrifying night of domestic subversion. Eventually, the young woman flees, and the final image of the film sees the character of Leatherface twirling in the sunrise, brandishing his chainsaw. Bleak, raw and gritty, the film became a horror movie icon spawning many sequels and hundreds of imitators. It turned a 140k budget into $30 million at the American box office and was banned in multiple countries. It is now considered a work of subversive filmmaking both in content and form. Bruce Isaacs, what's your take on this film? Thanks, Craig. Great overview. You know the thing that I that, that stuck out with me when I read the Wikipedia entry for Texas Chainsaw mm. is that Toby Hooper was desperate to get a PG rating on this movie <laughs> so, so that they could get a wider release what? and he could turn a bigger profit, right? And, of course, they said, well, no, you can't have a PG. We're likely going to have to make it an R. But when it came out, it initially had an X rating. Yeah. And it couldn't be screened everywhere and got banned in several places. But I always love the idealism of Toby Hooper and, uh, and that whole generation of, of those, those underground, low-budget filmmakers who wanted to make these extreme horror films but wanted to get big distribution. Just as a, as a bit of trivia, when Deadpool came out, which broke the record for the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time, Texas Chainsaw was still in the mix for the amount of money that it made. Yeah. That's I mean, that's wonderful. Out. But it would have only, what, been Deep Throat or Exorcist or something? that was. Uh, but Deep Throat is, uh, uh, was, was X-rated, right? Oh, Midnight Cowboy R. was X oh, when wow. it first came out as well. Okay, so hang on. Okay, What so made him think it was going to be PG? No, because <laughs> I, I think it was... I'll negotiate with the censors <laughs> to, to alter the film if I can get a PG rating. Oh, that's insane. But watching the film over the last couple of days, and your, 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 your description of it is raw mm. and gritty mm. and completely uncompromising is my own experience of this movie. And I've got to say, um, I am so in awe of the film, right? So for many people, this is a harrowing experience. I think the decades have been kind to this movie. Uh, it is such an influential film, but it also so knowingly did things in the genre that would forever change horror yeah. as we know it. So from my own point of view, I'm, I am fascinated with film style, and I'm so interested in movies that do certain things with style that stand out, and critics will say things like, we have never seen anything like this before. And even though when Texas Chainsaw first came out, there were positive and negative reviews, the reassessment of the film is that we're not just talking about a cult movie, mm. but we're talking about a work of great aesthetic achievement. And I suppose that's the case I would like to make about Texas Chainsaw. It's extremely low budget. So think about this. It's 1973. 
what's happening in the mainstream of Hollywood? We've got big studio movies coming. We've got Francis Ford Coppola, who's just released The Godfather. At the same time, you've got this very small... I mean, it's a grassroots kind of filmmaking. No famous people. Well, you shooting on sixteen like mil. Movie. You know yeah. what? It reminds me of shooting sixteen mil. The aesthetic, uh, well, not that the low budgetness is Night of the Living Dead, which is yep. sixty-eight, yep. right? But even Night of the Living Dead has more of a sense of its own. I think it's got stature. This film kind of comes on you. And you can't believe no, for sure. just how raw it is. I think Night of the Living Dead has a theatricalness to yeah, it, like yeah. a, a presentation style. Whereas I watch this and I go, the first time I saw this was on VHS, which I got yep. from the, the video store Colleton Grogenflix. Yes, um, which we will talk about in subsequent episodes. I'm sure episodes. we will. We cannot help but talk about that video store. It, it was grimy, basically. And yep. this film was, I, I have to be the poster child of that video store. Yeah. Well, I watched this when I was 18. My parents had finally let me watch it. I, I remember I was at university on the days off. They were at work. And I got to watch horror movies. And I watched this one during the day. And it was... Th- there's only one other experience like it, which was exorcism. And that played into my Christianity. For sure. You know, Same with me. Same with Herschel and I. But watching this movie felt like, have I uncovered a document that I shouldn't have found? Yeah. I, that's I, what it felt. I, I agree with that. that. Yeah. So there's almost something... Um, Snuff subversive almost. in watching it yes. that, that you shouldn't be encountering something like this and I think that's Toby Hooper's great gift one thing I wanted to say just as a kind of funny aside is it, it makes me sad that it took you to the age of 18 <laughs> to watch a horror movie while your parents were out <laughs> Why didn't you just watch the movie? Well, I couldn't play it because my brothers are younger than me. Okay, so yeah. they wouldn't allow <laughs> yeah, it to be played to them. So, yeah, yeah. yeah fair enough. Yeah. on them. But it made it, <laughs> it, it made it special. It made it more fun. It was Absol- like and, 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 and significant, right? So, okay, I, th- there are three things I just want to quickly talk about Texas yeah. Chainsaw and why I think we need to take it seriously and why I have no issue with saying it's an absolute cinematic masterpiece. Well, wait, before we say that... We should explain to kids that might not know what how it was received. It's always been a transgressive thing. Yes. It's always been trash, so to speak. Mm. It's always been a bit like, ooh. Even though horror fans have said, yeah, number one, you know, yeah. it's the best. But it's always still been, it's not, uh, yeah, as you said, it's not Well, it's never going to win a best picture. No. It's never going to have that adoration. And my question is, why is this film so different from what was happening in the studio mainstream. And there's a couple of things I want to say. This is the great time for horror to get its teeth in politically, mm-hmm. right? So I don't care who you are. If you're watching Texas Chainsaw and you're 1973, and let's say you're an audience and you've gone out to a midnight movie at the drive-in, you've probably just seen Easy Rider, 1969. Mm. There's no way your mind isn't taking you to this basic enduring narrative of young people who are going to go on the road to go and find something, um, to go and discover something, and they're going to encounter things that they don't expect, things that might be threatened. The rise of horror is a big deal in the 70s, I think. I mean, even if you think about it. So someone like Stephen King comes along and then becomes a phenomenon within three years, maybe. Yeah. And then 70s, 80s, you know, decades for horror. And I think... The reason it stands the test of time, and, and I hadn't seen it in a long, long time since watching it again for this podcast, but I think Hooper was onto something here. I think he presents it in a way where at no point you say, well, this is a little bit stupid or it's a little bit comedic or ridiculous. It's mm. genuinely 
awful and disturbing well, to watch I always this. confuse it as a found footage film. I, it's not a found footage film. And for people yeah. who don't know, found footage films are the films that look like someone, um, Cloverfield. Or, yeah, Blair, Blair, Blair Witch, Witch. that, that phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it was filmed and someone found the camera and saw what happened afterwards. That's what I always remember this as. It's interesting you bring up Easy Rider because mm. I feel like that the final, I don't know, I don't want to ruin Easy Rider if you haven't mm. seen it. It's amazing. But the yeah. last moment in Easy Rider yeah. and the shot that it comes off from that, I feel like that moment is then stretched out to make the majority of this film. I, I think several things happen. I think Toby Hooper is absolutely importing Mm. A visual sensibility from Easy Rider, yeah. But Dennis Hopper is picking that up from things like the French New Wave, the New American Independent Movement. So, I'm going to talk about this in our mise en scène, which is a, a section that we always are following this introduction. But I don't know about the two of you, but when I started watching this, I thought we're watching such a virtuoso, experimental filmmaker. Um, Every part of, especially the opening, the way they set up the the combi van, mm-hmm. the road, the way he uses sound. I don't know if you noticed mm. the, the amplification of sound. It's, and it's, it's such a tight movie. You you wouldn't you wouldn't shift a minute in this movie. No, it's I think. it's just the other great touchstone is clearly the Italian giallo film. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my God, Dario Argento did Girl with a Crystal Plumage, nineteen seventy one. Toby Hooper shooting this, nineteen seventy two. When you watch Toby Hooper, you can see. His lineage is not the classical American filmmaker. His lineage is the genre filmmakers that came out of France and Italy and the underground American movements. So when you, like I was watching and thinking, I completely understand his aesthetic lineage. I would also say, I feel like he's influenced by the media of the time, yeah. which was the, 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 the uh, Vietnam War, Exa- uh, yeah. the yeah. footage Absolutely. of horrible things happening yep. that's broadcast every night on TV now, and people started going, Whoa, what's happening to... Mm. It's like people now worried about TikTok ruining minds. Mm. It's a similar thing then, but, but they were showing horrible napalm attacks and yeah. murders and, and executions on the news as the, the camera yeah. operators were bringing back that footage. And I reckon this film is influenced by that... Uh, a saturation There's of a horrible violence, and I guess of, of, of bodily damage, yes, right? yeah. and of wounding because, it, like, so Vietnam, the images start really kicking off. I think around 1969. Mm. So you know, you know, there's so many just body pieces and and skin and wounding in this film, and this is definitely one of the the, the first moments I can think of historically in in this really underground American cinema. And mainstream's not going to pick this up for ages yet. But in this underground American main, mainstream cinema where you see real bodily kind of violence, I love, you know, the scene where Leatherface falls over because he's oh. had the ha- hammer thrown yeah, in his head yeah. and the, the chainsaw Cut cuts his, his leg. leg. Yeah. And, of course, what does Toby Hooper do? He goes in for the close-up so that you see the blood and the mm. fat spilling Like a David out. Cronenberg kind and of so thing. So Cronenberg really? is going to pick the... Or Bong Joon-ho in Parasite is going to pick up yeah. that kind of thing again, right? So I, I sort of feel that Toby Hooper's doing something that maybe has never existed, except if you go back and watch some of those B-grade Italian horror films that wanted to push. So Argento, Lucia Fulci is another critical figure yeah. who was doing stuff at the time. But so politically, um, this is announcing itself as just as a horror film that has political guts, right? And it's a criticism of, you know, what is happening uh, in the American uh, wilderness? 
Um, when they go off to see this family, this is a family where the abattoir where they've worked for generations has closed down. And there's yeah. this, you know, there's a sense of despair and what that leads to, you know, we talked about deliverance but, yeah. um, before, but whereas deliverance is a clear critique of the loss of that place in American history, this is more, it's not that there's just despair, but it's almost, it, it's kind of pathological um, insanity and, of, and violence. Well, that's that, all, that's well I mean, that, and that's what I think everyone says is based on Ed Gwynn. Is it yeah. Ed Gwynn? Yeah. Who was in, uh, who, well, people say psycho's based Psycho, on yeah. He's just a serial killer. I don't even think he was a big serial killer. He was more like a grave robber, and mm. then his mum died, or he killed his mum. Anyway, that's what he usually represents. But I think that the city versus the country thing is a huge thing in this. Yeah. And I, I think, unlike Deliverance, which, as you said, it's much more explicit, this place no longer exists, I think there's an intergenerational thing. Mm. And it's another one of the, it's like the, there's a moment where the, the hitchhiker says in the, in the van, um, the old ways were better. Yeah. Before we used, before we put the the, the bolt into the cow's head, yep. we used to just cut it through. And that that reminds me of yep. yeah, that's another anti-technology thread, which is yeah, the old ways of doing things. And again, horror mm. and conservative nature, like so many horrors, are like the conservative a generation above paying down to the young kids who are getting to be free. You know, yeah, like I mean, and like, that's going to be the entire kind of sexualizing that. of the the heroine, for example, that we've seen films like Jaws. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a, a thought that like really resonated with me was that the circumstances that occur to these people, which is really not of their doing, but what's surprising is what it's capable of doing to you, what mm. the response is, what the consequence of that kind of 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 shift is, what that kind of environment mm. is, and that's for me that's where Parasite and Texas Chainsaw have something in common. Yeah. They're, you know, they're talking about the outsider, they're talking about the disconnect, they're talking about, about the circumstances that then generate something really awful in response. And, you know, this is part of the politics of trying to understand where American identity is, uh, where American history is at, because these are all films in the tra tradition of Vietnam and the loss of faith in, in, in a sort of political decency or political uh, goodness and mm -hmm. motivation. So you see the complete fragmentation. Um, I think the biggest fragmentation that, that we're looking for here is of the nuclear family. Because if uh, you good. think about what this is, yeah. right, we're talking about essentially the, the family, intergenerational, yes. and the complete disfigurement of that most the, cherished of you think about you know the, establishment positions the brother and sister have come back to see the house that they grew up yeah, in yeah, yeah. that is the generation above them which is now decaying they've left it like they've said metaphorically yeah. goodbye to that old life and they're living the cool hippie life and it's almost know? as if the life they now go and refine has been overtaken by sadism and but violence that, that family and, and dinner scene, like the whole film, it plays out like a slasher. Yeah. Uh, even though no one ever refers to it as a slasher, it's more of a cabin in the woods genre film or a southern discomfort film, right? It's more <laughs> southern discomfort. <laughs> that, I don't think I've a, ever heard I've that. I've heard that as that's a sub-subgenre -sub of deliverance and the yeah, movie right. Southern Comfort. Or I had a, uh, one of my uh, great PhD students did a PhD called Queering 
the Gothic South. Oh, and wow. she did a whole chapter on Texas Chainsaw. Um, and I was saying to her, she a really lovely thing when she finished. She um, bought me a present, mm. which was a signed original poster of Texas Chainsaw um, and signed by the final girl, Marilyn Burns. I've got oh, it in my office. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really lovely. It's something I really cherish. Oh, now you need to get Gunther Hansen to <laughs> sign <laughs> it. Yeah, to sign it as well. <laughs> in, is he, is he in, grandfather? No, he's Leatherface. He's Leatherface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he might be dead now. He okay. died a couple of years ago. Um, sorry. Rest in peace, Gunther. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we should move on then to our yeah. next film, yeah? Take two. Our second film is 2019's Parasite. The South Korean juggernaut of directing Bong Joon-ho had made a whole bunch of random films up until this one. He'd made four sci-fi satires, about three crime films, a couple of them were true crime, and his first feature film, which was a little scene, black comedy. Then, in 2019, he began work on Parasite, a film that he also produced and co-wrote. Parasite is the story of a poor family who con their way into the lives of a wealthy family. Then one night when the wealthy family is away from their uber-stylish residence, the poor family camp inside the house, but soon discover that there is another poor couple who have already had the same idea. It all comes to a head when the rich family return and the poor families turn on each other in order to survive. The final act of the film sees the poor family self-destruct at a bloody birthday party for the rich child and in a final act of defiance, the patriarch of the poor family murders the rich father. The film went on to win critical acclaim around the world, taking out the top prize at Cannes and the Best Picture Oscar. Its global box office return was over $250 million. Herschel, what's your take on this film? I think it's worth starting with that idea that by the time Parasite comes out in 2020, Bong Joon-ho has done so much already and is lauded as an auteur that you, you, you can't really predict where this director's going to go. Mm. Um, that's why for me, when I hear that he's doing something new, that's, that's possibly the most excited I can be about a director that's working at the moment because of what I think of his previous films. We should just say, can I just say, mm. like you think of The Host, which mm. is like a Godzilla sci-fi octopus attacking a city. Then you've got not memories of murder. Memories of murder, an amazing. If, if you line up, film? if you line up, host, memories of murder, Snowpiercer. Oh, Snowpiercer? What the if hell, you put these films man? together, yeah. it's very odd. You, you could be forgiven for asking, how can it be one person coming up with yeah. all of this? Now, the other thing I'd add to it is, Bong is always involved in the writing and the and the creation construction yeah. of the idea. It's not as and, though and, he's bringing another like, stuff here. You know, the great auteur cinema that everyone came to love in the seventies and eighties. You can see that there's some kind of vision that defines, you know, he's always interested in class. Yeah. He's always interested in subverting genre. So every genre of film that he makes, and to some extent, they all wear their genres on their sleeves, right? But they're all a little bit different. They tweak things in Absolutely. unusual ways. Yeah, and I think that's yeah, what yeah. makes him so distinctive. By the time Parasite comes out, it was quite interesting. It came out a long way before the Oscars, if you remember. And I just started seeing that poster. It's um, of the father with the with the blacked out that eyes. Is, it's so striking, that poster. Yeah. It's an amazing poster. Like, when I think of the movie, then I look at the poster, I'm like, what is even the poster saying about yeah. the movie? Exactly. Yeah. And, and when I first got to Parasite, it's one of the few films where I went into it literally knowing almost nothing about it, not knowing what to expect. Mm. And I would say within the first 10 minutes, I was completely hooked on this film. So... The first thing I want to point out about this, I'll make a few points about Parasite before we throw it open to discussion, but the first thing I want to say is that at times, 
this film feels like it's more of a caper than anything else. <laughs> yeah. You know the bit where they're moving yes. themselves into the family's house? Well, the entire house? first act <laughs> I mean, is just a I completely wild caper. But so it I does know. it with comedy. Like yeah. uh, exactly. When I hadn't seen, I knew nothing about it when I saw it, and I'm just watching it going, oh, this is the funniest film I've ever it, seen. It was truly it was one of the funniest. Dirty, rotten scoundrels or something. <laughs> so a short composition of everyone yeah, going, yeah. Oh, I've got an idea who can help you with this. Yeah. It's like brilliant. So can I just opening? throw one thing in it before we go to you? Are you going to talk at all about the opening scene? in your mise-en-scene? No, no, no. Okay. My mise-en-scene is a more serious scene. I just scene, want so. to say, the scene that immediately beat me over the head and said, <laughs> you're, you're in the space of someone truly brilliant mm -hmm. is when the father's folding all the pizza boxes yeah. and he's got this idea that if you go really fast, we can get most done. And he's in the background in the deep part of the shot going <laughs> berserk with the boxes. <laughs> and then the owner of the pizza shop yeah. comes in and goes, I can't use any of this. These at, are all, yeah. those are good, but well, these are all bad. At, at least a quarter. No okay, at least a quarter, yeah. and there's four of them. Yeah. At least a quarter are <laughs> unusable. And if you watch that scene, the way that Bong has framed it, <laughs> the father is in the deep background of the shot, but mm -hmm. it's a deep focus shot, so we can see him, and he's just standing there looking down at his shoes, <laughs> and he's so ashamed <laughs> because it's, all his boxes oh, are stuffed. And I just thought... It's such a brilliant composition. How many filmmakers, yeah. like most filmmakers would set up a bit of dialogue and get a gag off it. Instead, he asks you to watch carefully. And it's what I love in his movies. And I'm, I'm actually going to come back carefully. to that because what happens after that box folding scene when they get paid is one of the funniest sequences, I think, in the oh, entire yeah. film. So I've got a couple of quotes out of that afterward because that's the other thing I'm going to say about this. I'll come to it later on. But the writing in this film is... You know, you, you you couldn't imagine somebody writing something more funny, more tragic, more more insightful mm. than what we come across mm -hmm. consistently in this film. So it's Ocean's Eleven as a caper, but better than Ocean's Eleven, in my opinion. Mm. Then, well, it's kind of a dark Ocean's. Ocean's Eleven is kind of squeaky clean and polished. Exactly. It also does the caper thing where <coughs> the midpoint or the two-third point Something goes wrong for the team. Exactly. It's like, how are they going to get out of this? And you know when but in this case, it's like, oh, what? When you remember the, tuberculo the tuberculosis set up, oh, and then the from there, they cut to the, to the sun, and he's going, Dad, no, no, try to bring it down a little bit. It's too much. It's too much. And <laughs> when you just, were watching it, it's, it's a work of genius. Was there any moment, well, both of you, was there any moment where you thought, whoa, whoa, whoa this is too far? No. I've grown to love these people. So when the sister goes in and starts teaching him, Art, through, <laughs> art therapy, so I, and gonna, she has no background in so I'm art gonna therapy. I'm going to touch on that. I'm going to touch. I'm going to touch you on know, the morality of the yeah. characters and what does that, what does that do it, to us? It aligns us so powerfully with them, and then it reveals, whoa, they're they're more duplicitous than anyone exactly. else in this movie. Yeah. I also want to bring in Texas at this point because mm. the second point I'll make here is that for me, it's unlike any depiction of nuclear family that I've seen in film. Mm. They're they're incredibly tight. They're incredibly important. Yeah. I don't know if you notice this, but there's perfect symmetry in the numbers and the way that the two families operate, the Park family and the Kim family. So you've got four on oh, this side great. and four on this I side. I haven't noticed that. And you'll notice that when you watch the film, when they're cut between certain scenes, you'll see them cut between father to father. When they introduce the person downstairs, it goes between husband to husband to husband. It's, it's really 
incredibly wow. well orchestrated. So you're saying there's a real formal oh, precision there's, there's, in these relationships. I love that word. Yeah. But there's that that word precision mm. is attached to Bong Joon-ho. It's just that it never looks forced. Mm. It, it's just, he's a wonderful storyteller, but he's incredibly precise as well. I, can I say that's the other thing that makes these two films uh, for me a natural pairing, and why I was so excited when we when we stumbled on Texas versus um, <laughs> Parasite, where we think initially it's like what, but then you think. Um, and watching Texas and Parasite close together, you realize that Toby Hooper and Bong Joon-ho have a lot in common yeah. in that their precision in framing and with cutting is just so stunning to behold in every scene. And well, Bong Joon-ho is one of the great... Well, remember, I wasn't convinced at this pairing, but then mm. in watching the films, um, I, I think it's because of the fact that you're truly unique directors and creators of this material and then you've got commentary about society and the breakdown mm. of society under certain circumstances. So that unique nuclear family perspective, I think, is amazing because what Bong does in a lot of his films is he takes the biggest ideas and he convinces the viewer that you can view them in this microcosm of the family, mm. which is you're taking the biggest ideas and you put it in the smallest possible environment, and yet it resonates perfectly. And then finally, and this is going to be the dominant thing I'll talk about, is that Parasite's also the most, I guess for me, an incredibly insightful, and it's a brutal presentation, I guess, of the reality and, and uh, you know, the consequence of class difference. Mm. I think you can't really divorce this, or you can't really exclude that from any hey, view of Do you reckon that's film. why it speaks powerfully to the three of us? I think so. certainly I when mean, I watched it, I was moved by the fact that this is a movie about class, mm -hmm. right? This is about, you know, I was saying to Craig before, I, I love that dude who lives in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> when he first appears, you think, what is going on here? But I couldn't help. You know, you feel guilty for siding with the family that's trying to unthrone the family, yeah, right? Yeah. And yet I couldn't help myself being won over by this family that doesn't have great plumbing. And yeah. tries to yeah, fold yeah, pixel yeah, boxes. Yeah. There is and no I think there's better, a class oh. there's a class in you know, engagement and intensity that I don't remember feeling in another film for I, such a and long isn't time. that what The Simpsons does though? I was thinking about Homer Simpson and and Father Kim over here, right? <laughs> Homer Homer is not a great man by any stretch. He can sure. be immoral, but there's goodness in him and he's a family person. Now Good satire at its best can never just be all good or all bad. No. You know that's that's when people attempt satire and they fail because of that that really unsubtle dichotomy yeah. that a lot of these films. And you're absolutely create. right. That good satire should puncture the norm or the orthodoxy. Mm. That's what satire should do. Satire should say, "You think you understand these distinctions in morality or in ethical behavior? I'm going to show you a movie that completely troubles." And that Bong just doesn't puncture it. Like he. He destroys it in yeah. this film. It's it's just unlike anything I'd seen at the time. Mm. I just want to quote from, I was reading through a bunch of stuff in prep for this, and um, and How Chu of the Washington Post said something that to me really stood out. Um, he said that what Bong Joon-ho does in this film, in Parasite, is that he achieves the unimaginable. He can convince us in this day and age, and I think that's the key, in, in 2020, he can convince us that there is no war but the class war. Now that line, has its mm -hmm. you know its history mm -hmm. in in the communist movement and the socialist yeah. movement from a long time ago, and people make fun of it nowadays. But to say that this film puts it front and center, and not only makes it central, but actually forces us to engage with it, is it's an amazing achievement. And I also love the fact that the film Parasite was not only lauded in Europe and in Asia, but that America couldn't turn its back on it either. 
You know, uh, you know that what? I, I can I, I just I did yeah. a few media things on the day of the Oscars when because people wanted to ask. Um, what do you think this means that this film? And I, when it won, I was in shock, right? Yeah. And I remember saying to to you know journalists, I think this is a major turning point for us. I thought this has kicked in the door. This has changed. Well, look what everything. happened after that. Yeah, the the, um, the Squid Game. I mean, on Netflix. Suddenly, Netflix becomes a champion. Yeah. Of linguistic, they bought, they cultural, social identity. And they bought Squid yeah. Game. So yeah. that. Perfectly segues into the next thing I just want to say re- really quickly in the next few minutes is that I said to my 11-year-old son, Lockie, I need to watch this movie for the podcast. Would you be willing to watch Parasite? Mm. And he said, yeah, I'll give it a go. I said to him, it's Korean. And he said, so is it going to be as much fun as Squid Game, which he's seen? <laughs> yeah. And I go, let's watch it. Now, he watched two hours and 15 minutes of Parasite. He was glued to the screen. And the reason I think it's such a good satire is because he then asked me a bunch of questions. You know, like Bruce, you and I do all the time. He'd pick up the remote control, pause it, and Mm. he'd say something to me like, yeah, but are they good people or are they bad people? I don't know what they are. Mm. And if they're not good people, who are the good people in the movie? And so what I said to him, that's exactly the point. The reason this is true, the reason it resonates, it's because maybe you can't split it up into that simplicity. Maybe it's Mm. too complex. Maybe what Bong is saying is that life under these circumstances is very complex. Mm. You can't have this dichotomy of good or bad, of right or wrong. Mm. At no point is Bong entering into some political commentary saying, well, therefore, we need to change society to do this. He's and he doesn't pres- give you a solution. He doesn't. And that's, no I've got that in my notes. In there are no solutions. And I think that's very powerful. He's not interested uh, in the solution. Kill the rich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, everyone's Never dying. Everyone, but don't forget, yeah. everyone loses out of this at that's the end. True. Everyone yeah. loses. I just wanted to finish up on a couple of quotes because I think the, the script, the words, and the acting is the ensemble cast. And how do you get that many people all so important, scene to scene, they're faultless. But mm. here's a lighthearted comment. After faulting the pizza boxes and getting paid for those pizza, pizza, uh, pizza boxes, um, Father Kim says um, at their meal where they've gone out and got some takeaway food and, and some beer, he says, we gathered here today to celebrate the reconnection of our phones <laughs> and Wi-Fi. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? I, I just <laughs> two more quotes because I think, with the benefit of hindsight, after you finish the film, you view it, you hear it completely differently than when you first see it, mm-hmm. right? So, the sadness and complexity of class and identity. Key with the son after forging the documents and working with his sister to forge these documents, um, to say that he's from a prestigious university. He says to his parents as he's walking out the door for the first meeting, and he says, "I don't think of it as forgery or a crime, as I intend to go there next year." Then the, then the dad, Keith Hack, he pauses and he, he's got that solemn, dopey look <laughs> yeah, in his face yeah. and he says, I'm proud of you, son. <laughs> I mean, it's an astonishing line. I it's just love that. I'm proud oh of your, your lie. Exactly. <laughs> now, and the final thing I want to say is when talking about the collective failed ventures, the mother, Chung Suk, says, yeah, remember, it was after the Taiwan shock, before the cake shop went bust, it was in that six-month period. <laughs> I remember when, when I saw it again the other day with Lockie, I, I didn't hear that line first time yeah. around. It's such a brilliant line. Yeah. They have been kicked around from pillar to post trying everything they can. Now, when I, when I saw it the other day, it was funny to me. Mm. But when you get to the end of the film and you think back to it, it's not funny anymore, you know? Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scène, where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Bruce with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I love this part of the podcast where my work is really a lot about what do movies do to make us feel things. That's kind of bottom line is when I go and watch a movie, 
I'm really interested in an emotional experience, and I kind of want to, you know, be blown away. I want my senses to be assaulted. And so I, I'm drawn to movies like Texas Chainsaw because I think they're part of a tradition where what they're trying to do is not just communicate things. They're not trying to, they're not passive vehicles for understanding what you see on screen. The sequence that I find uh, almost as if the film catapults you from not knowing what you're supposed to expect to suddenly confronting what a strange and unhinged film this is, is the scene where we pick up the hitchhiker and the sequence in which we are introduced to the hitchhiker and via the hitchhiker, this rural place and the family that we can encounter. The hitchhiker scene is all about amplifying your experience of the movie. There's almost, think about it, there's almost no plot. They just pick up a guy, mm-hmm. right? That sequence goes on for quite a long time. Almost nothing happens. And yet, the intensity of that experience, I was watching it. And I was not only on the edge of my seat, but I'm, I'm saying I was genuinely disturbed by what I was going through as a viewer. Well, I mean, it must have come as a complete surprise to audiences. When, the, when, when he's sitting there and he starts cutting himself. But not even just, I mean, yeah, but, but what about just how oh, weird no. he looks and the close-ups on his face. And, and I just, you know, when I, when I started watching, I thought I would have given anything to be in the cinema in 1973. Yeah. To have watched this starts off fairly generically. We kind of know these tropes of the young people in the car going off. You know, that's part of teen movies. And then this happens. Nothing could have prepared you. But it's not, again, just a plot. It's not that somebody, you know, that Toby Hooper wrote that in a script. They pick up a crazy hitchhiker. It's what he does with the language of cinema. So a couple of things. I think there are some gestures that tell us this is the level he's working on. There are... Performance gestures? No, no, no. I think quotations from other movies. Ah. I think he's situating us in interesting ways. So, for example, I couldn't help thinking in the way that you know, the term mise-en-scene literally means what is in the frame. Yeah. The way that Toby Hooper doesn't shoot in the standard, let's give everybody a wide shot, let's get everyone understanding where we are in relation to each other, mm. but he will often go for off-kilter close-ups. Extremely mm-hmm. unusual in classical cinema. So in the, in the Hitchhiker scene, the way we get introduced to him is not only is he a manic figure, and not only does he cackle and do weird stuff, and he's got that weird kind of, I assume it's a birthmark on his face, mm-hmm. and he's disheveled, and his eyes are wild. And he it's looks like th- James Franco. <laughs> but it's not enough for Toby Hooper that that's the weirdness. What he wants to give you is an amplified version of it by intensifying the framing and the cutting. So he's constantly cutting into weird close-ups of the guy's face. Reverse shots are... Strange low angle close ups of Franklin. The, the, I remember the strange low angle is. Right, is so the much weird strange part. low angle. Now, I guess the point I'm trying to make is all of these things make us feel stuff. And so the emotional experience of Texas Chainsaw is not at all um, equivalent to what you see as story or plot at all. The experience, I guess, is so much amplified, so much more. Terrible. The, I think the, the the razor is just for me. Well, I, I would like to think it's a reference to uh, a great surrealist film by uh, uh, Louis Bunuel and um, Salvador Dali called uh, and Shen Andalou, uh, made in the late 1920s. Uh, and if people have seen that, and if you haven't, maybe pauses, check it out on YouTube. Uh, the English translation is the Andalusian dog. Uh, they but, they made it for YouTube, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, they got they got most hits on YouTube. Oh. 
No one's watching it. No. Look, this was a big Incredibly movie. Incredibly forward-thinking artist. <laughs> but I gotta say, look, there's a but famous that, scene in it where the, the razor the yeah, cuts yeah, yeah. the eyeball. Yeah. Horrible. Now, if you think about the prevalence of eyes and eyeballs in this movie, mm. and the fact that he flicks out the razor, to me that come on, of course he's working with a surrealist tradition here, and at the same, he's at film school. But right? also, I just want to say before you get to the razor, the subversiveness yeah. of taking that photo, which kids nowadays wouldn't know about, but yeah. in the olden days. Um, before cameras were everywhere, you'd go to a restaurant and someone would take a Polaroid or a nice photo and it'd be like when they try and sell you a rose at a fancy restaurant. They'll take your photo and then they'll try and sell it back to you by the end of the meal. This is like that experience. But instead of trying to sell it and not making money, this dude puts, what, gunpowder on it and then blows (laughs) it up and burns it in front of them? And I love when they blow it up. So this is, again, Toby Hooper. It it reminds me of the kind of stuff George Miller would do with the first Mad Max, where whenever there's any kind of action, go in for a really tight shot Mm. and cut very quickly. And again, it's all about the visceral experience. Well, and that's had what those, horror is, those right? Those awesome eyes popping Absolutely. out. So the eye popping, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so just keeping everyone guessing every step of the way. And, and You're completely uncertain. And not unstable. knowing, like, how am I supposed to feel? And at any moment, I could see something horrific, which is so much Texas Chainsaw. Like, what's coming just around the corner and the way he sets it up? The other thing I wanted to say was the, the Hitchhiker introduces us to the idea of weirdness and being disfigured. Mm. And even though we don't see physical deformity, there's a clear sense of mental deformity that we get introduced to. And in the sequence, and I mean, again, I don't know this, but I would like to think this is what Toby Hooper's doing. He's almost, in a sense, disfiguring a classical form of cinematography. So instead of shooting in the ratios that we all expect from mainstream cinema and that we're all habituated to in 1973, he's going to upset you with having to encounter the tight close-ups, the off-kilter angles, the crossing the line, which is when you flip the camera from one side to the other and you change the direction of the view. So we're constantly unsettled and unstable. And then what are we seeing? We're seeing a person unhinged, irrational, without motivation, all the fundamental rule breakings of the classical narrative system. And then, of course, when he, they finally get him out of the van mm. and he marks his blood on the van, there's something so primal mm. and awful about it. Um, but, look, the, the point I want to make here is Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, for me, one of the you know, really great examples of the moment in the history of cinema when B-grade movies were teaching us how to feel, where filmmakers were saying... We don't anymore have to observe these classical rules. We can let's go crazy, and it doesn't surprise me. It would not surprise me to know that Toby Hooper was closely watching people like Mario Bava. Mm. He did a movie called Bay of Blood, which I absolutely adore. Clear moments uh, um, of 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 influence for for Toby Hooper. The other thing that right. Hooper does as well, I think, is that. So I love that scene also. I don't know Texas Chainsaw as well as you both know, but I enjoyed watching this movie. I had a couple of feelings as I was going through it. It was becoming increasingly disturbing. And then did you ever, did either of you ever get that sense where, what if I can't handle the next disturbing yeah, thing? Abs- what if it's just too yeah, awful yeah. and i got to turn it off? That's the beauty of the film. Exactly. The other thing I'd say is that where I think Hoopy is very clever here, he... Yes, he's experimenting and everything, but he never loses a comp- or it's never a complete disconnect with those 
traditional tropes of suspense. Mm. So um, this is a little bit later on in the film, but remember when Leatherface is there and he drags a person into the room and then shuts that metal yes. door? Yeah. And he doesn't allow the audience into that? So it's, it's like he's really he's toying with the suspense to an extent that he will let us in a little bit but yep. then he draws the line because he's got to hold us back one step removed I, from but it. But not only that, when Pam then comes in looking for the guy yeah. about two minutes later, yeah. and when she sees the silver door, you sort of freak out because you're yeah. expecting the door to open and then him just to rush out, which he ends up doing. Well, that's also right? a comedy trope, sudden appearance and reappearance. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I laugh when that door shuts most of the time. But there's also an element of... That's because there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> it is comical to yeah. go, wow, so fast. <laughs> you know, well, you, you have a character Especially drop, when it's drop face in and out of frame. Yeah. That, that's the, you know, it's classic yeah. comedy. Yeah. Now, the... the <laughs> One thing that gets me uh, in this film is the functionality of the family and, mm. and their killing processes. Like, there is a bucket, you yeah. know? There's a bucket Well, the for bucket blood. below Pam yeah. with the hook. Yeah, yeah. The there, bucket's one of the most disturbing images. The, 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 the strong thing in it, I think, that makes it unhinged and, and, and scarier is that this is a family who have a process. And you can see their art mm. slash uh, mm. artifacts of the way they live all around the house. You can see the process of killing all around the house. And it's not shown to you in the way like a movie, like a torture porn movie, you'll yep. go, oh, look at this element. Oh, look yeah. at the, uh, <laughs> the like Rube Goldstein the machine yes. around it, you know, and then it, there's a musical track for that one yeah. element, the machine, you're like, oh, whatever. But this is like, this is in the background yeah. and it is a process of killing that's occurring all the time and you are now in it. Good and luck. can I add just one very quick thing to that because you, you're so right that if it was done in a torture porn genre now, we yeah. would make such a kind of big deal of it. But when you see the the wall of animal Skulls? Yeah. The, the, the skeletons. Did you notice yeah. how they show that, which is that they jump cut in on total silence? And for me, that is an mm. absolute quotation of the triple jump cut in in the birds oh, yeah. when they discover the guy with his eyes out. You know, and it's sort of Toby Hooper, I think, showing us that there's a cine literacy year that is, of course, going to explode in the 70s and that he's doing it on a really low budget. But he's, this, is, this is the history of cinema that he's putting into the film. Well, you know what's interesting is Carol Clover, Jay Clover, that yeah, book, yeah. Men, Women and Children. Actually, I wanted to just mention that very quickly. What, yeah. what is your take on the, you know, the massive feminist attention that came to this movie in scholarship afterwards? Yeah. So Carol Clover's book, which is called Men, Women and Chainsaws, Gender yeah. in the, horror film, the Modern Horror Film, it's just such a Bible. You know, Tarantino was talking about it the other day when I saw mm. him in an interview and talking about how important that was to the generation that grew up with the slasher. And so I'm interested in, did you guys see the Sally character as um, as that final girl? You know, the, the girl that, that, that survives see, so the here's great... The thing. I know that that book's about that. But yeah. I feel like the final girl wasn't until Slasher became a proper in yeah. its own entity. And I always think it's Halloween and Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis, right? right? And I think that's the final girl. Yeah. It's someone who, like, I just think it's a coincidence that this is the last person yeah. in that film. It's not because she was the most virtuous or the most smartest or the most it definitely aware of masculine presence. kind of sexual it, ideological codes. No, but I also don't feel like the film is pushing, it doesn't have that creepy misogynist gaze which other horror films can yep. have where it's like oh well this is the hottest chick or this is the plain hot chick I mean chick. that's a great point I don't like, see it I don't as think it... a patriarchal gaze you know the kind of thing that yeah. Laura Mulvey would talk but about then, and the reason being the people doing the looking are clearly established as 
um, broken from any kind of you know normative way of seeing but things. But there is exploitation, though. I mean, for example, the outfits that they wear when they when they're catching the the combi van, yeah. like that's basically California well, how, girls, right? But also, yeah. how many articles yeah. are written about? Because at one point, isn't Leatherface almost done up with makeup, like feminine makeup? It's toward like the a, end, like yeah, toward the end scene where he comes like in, yeah. The standard line on the final girl is that. Um, these movies, like there's a whole tradition of slasher horror, especially in the States, where this person kills everyone and then the final girl survives. But the position uh, of a lot of feminists is let's look at what the nature of this final girl is. She has to be chaste. She has to be traditional in her thinking. Um, she can't be in any way subversive. But that's what they satirize in Scream, right? That's what they satirize so, in Scream. So in fact, Scream's a perfect... Um, you know, that's the theory, right? right? Yeah, that yeah. is, that's the deconstruction of the slasher. But the thing with me in Texas Chainsaw is that it reminds me of they are more gastronomical than they yeah. are sexual. Yeah. Like, I believe they're out to eat and, and to, to make food and to be farmers. Yeah, because I actually wondered whether the hitchhiker was going to do anything sexual to her in that last act of the film. And but I watched carefully. I couldn't see anything erotic at any moment. No, they tie her to a chair, yeah. four men... And then they give the dad a hammer over a bucket so that they can bleed her out and eat her. Like, yeah. There is nothing... I, I which is the slaughter sex- thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. a lot of people say that, that penetrating with a knife is uh, parallel to penetration Oh, yeah, but some, look, some of those readings, I think, were a little bit over-determined. Well, even if they're metaphorical, but yeah. that's not what's here. They're here to carve up me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I think Loop is also saying it's... I think it brings the class thing in at that point because I didn't just see it as they carving up me to eat. I think they've reopened the abattoir, and I think they're actually packaging meat and selling it to people. Possibly, mm-hmm. I think that's the way they continue actually, that's their lifestyle. That's an interesting point because Robin Wood does make the the, the 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 claim that in fact what we're seeing is kind of the aftermath of the failure of capitalism yeah. and the kind of reconstitute you know the family as so, having reconstituted something. So to to an extent, and, and maybe it's a bit of a reach, but isn't that what a parasite does? It says yeah. that you're in an environment that's not working for you. Reconstruct the environment, reconstruct yourself, life. Yeah. You have to. And do something subversive and then do better. And not only that, but consume those that were once in But I think both families or... exist in the shell of the capitalism has moved on. Yeah. Or the technology of the capitalism. Yeah, you've been left behind, right? Or has failed in some sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here it is in, in a rural setting where they used to have a job, but now they no longer have a job. Yeah. In Parasite, they're living in a shop that no longer exists and doesn't operate, you know, and they're having to find other things to... Yeah. And, and obviously, it's, it's, not, it's not an uncommon theme or, or motif in film like the what was that the quite a recent film with Chris Pine in it about where they, they're holding up banks oh that was and a then great it's film. a fantastic movie with um, Jeff Bridges as well yeah, yeah, and yeah. when the credits begin you come across this building and somebody's graffitied no bailout for this town you know, so it, it, this is yeah. people having to reinvent themselves, people struggling because of the actions of others. And that others. goes back to the fact that Texas Chainsaw is a 1973 film, and it's a very important time politically in the States, and it's a really it's a time of agitation and, and a kind of a loss of, like, what did it mean to be a successful America? All right, Herschel, I hope you've got a good scene for us in your mise en scene. Mise en scène. Okay, when I thought of... Um, I haven't watched Parasite recently. When I thought of a scene that I would want to represent what Bong Joon-ho uh, really achieves and if we were to look at it under you know a microscope the truth is I could have chosen from 10 scenes because I think Bong is um, very good at not just telling a story but then he brings it to life with the way that he constructs things what I've chosen to go with though is what really is the transition in the film from the setup 
you go through a transition period and then you have the tragedy that ha- that occurs at the end. And for me, I want to take us through the point at which the director shifts the film, the narrative, to an inevitable uh, tragic consequence. So the scene I've chosen is where the father um, and the two children are hiding under the sofa um, because the Park family, the rich family who own this magnificent mansion, <laughs> they have returned unexpectedly from a camping trip oh due God, to the stormy so weather. Are you doing the sexy scene? No, no, I'm not doing oh that. Oh, my no, God. That's that, that was one of my favorite scenes. Wow. Now, I do want to say that I've timed, I've timed <laughs> it out. And from the point at which the, the family is, you know, getting drunk and eating food and enjoying the bathtub and the TV. Oh, that's right. That was fantastic. To the point at which this scene ends where I end, it's it's close to a third of the film. It's that significant to what? the film. It's cl- it's a turning point in the whole thing. Yeah. If you go from end to end to the to the gymnasium um, where it all comes to an end, and then from then on, it's just the ending. It's the conclusion at the party. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pick it up where the father, the daughter, and the son are going to use a small window of opportunity to scurry out of the house. <laughs> I remember and it. What 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 Bong Joon so does here is that what was very unpredictable actually is that the Park um, husband and wife have had a sexual encounter on the sofa while the family are <laughs> hiding underneath the sofa. So I can't really do justice to it. It's an astonishing scene. It's confronting and one of the funniest things that I've seen in a long time. But as they fall asleep, the two children first come out. And then the father crawls out in his hands and knees like he's in trench warfare. Uh-huh. And I honestly believe that the camera angle above him, yeah, yeah, yeah. where Fantastic. he moves, that is trench warfare. Oh, no, that's deliberate. Okay. That is absolutely deliberate. And then suddenly the little boy who is camping in the rain outside, he goes <laughs> um, over um, and, and he's, using, he's learning English. And then suddenly the father wakes up. So we've got the, the rich father on the sofa, the poor father in the middle of the floor, <laughs> but lying in dark, in, in dark sort of pajamas, in trench warfare style, and he goes absolutely dead still. Um, <laughs> the father talks to his son outside, the rich dad, um, the park father talks to the son outside, goes back to sleep, and then finally, um, father, the Kim, the, 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 the main father in the film, can make his way down the stairs. Now, I think it's important that they end, they exit the house through the garage. They can't leave through the front door. Mm. They have to exit. They have to scurry away. And that's it. I guess that's what I'm going to be suggesting here is that Bong Joon-ho is really turning them into symbolically, metaphorically, into rats fleeing mm. um, mm-hmm. at this point. Um, the father is the driver for the rich, f- the rich park f- uh, father. Clicks the button, the roller door goes up, and he has to scurry under the roller door so that the door can be coming down, almost Indiana Jones style. Um, now, here's where the scene really starts, and it fundamentally shifts. As they exit the garage, we it's pouring rain, and there's already water running down the hill from the hilltop mm-hmm. residences. Now, this is the same water that will flow from the hilltop suburbs, and it'll be responsible for flooding the homes below in the valley areas where our main, the Kim family live. And, and where all the poverty where all the Where all the poverty it, classes uh, live. Yeah. Now, as they come running down the stairs and, and the water is, is really becoming torrential, we lose the audio and then up comes this very tragic music. And it's going to accompany our characters on something of an odyssey, of really a voyage which is not just from rich to poor, but it's from top to bottom. Mm. It's, it's from above society 
to the underclass. And so that metaphor is just captured in the most, you know, in, in the most wonderful way. They, they and that's a really powerful thing you're talking about there, because I think there's so many symbolic resonances to that, right? And so many textual things we know of, like, you know, the the, the voyage to an underground. Mm. Absolutely. Or, or, you know, a voyage to... Um, it's also a voice to discovery. But it's always it's always <coughs> um, uh, the underclass. You yeah, know, the, exactly. The poor people, like um, like the time machine, for example. Or yeah, with the Eloch and the, the Elochs and the, the, the Molochs and, and the Eloy. Yeah. And, but then there's um, Metropolis. Yeah. With the yeah. working class going down in the lifts, and then Metropolis is a really interesting touchstone for Parasite. Yeah, I yeah. think so, and, and also. Um, Titanic. We must not forget Titanic, guys. <laughs> now, I was not predicting that one. <laughs> you know, the third class, uh, the yeah, guys yeah. inside the, the, the yeah. machines. And Leo DiCaprio gulling over the side of the boat. <laughs> As only Leo can. From year on in, I don't know. I play a lot of computer games, so I don't know if this, if this struck either of you. But the first shot, the wide shot of the characters running down the slope, and we see how steep the gradient is mm, as yeah. they're heading down through the water. So it's treacherous, it's dangerous, and they're actually running to to, to a very sad environment, to poorness, to poverty, to, to Wait, tragedy. What's this got to do with computing? You mean it looks like Now, what? what I'm going to say is, oh, right. to me, it was very much framed as a platformer as a gaming, as you go down the platform, down so the stairs, further and further so down right. into the dungeons. And you're saying it's kind of, it's metaphorical, and, and, it, and, it, and it symbolizes this genuine movement down, 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 I, as I if think you would so in a platform But for game. kids that don't know, or people that don't know, <laughs> platformers are the, the side view games, yes, where yeah. like Donkey Kong, you see something from the side, or yeah. I don't know, what's another famous platform? I definitely think this motif of the descent, yes. you know, like into the underworld, um, but I also wonder if there's a symbolism of like the ultimate storm that's coming to sort of wash away um, the, the, to, to wash away the topography of rich and poor. I don't know, because you see, for me, that would make Bong too explicit. I, yeah. I don't, and, and also, if you look at the ending of the film and what actually happens from the storm, yeah. it's really not, <laughs> well, it's not washing away, it's, it's really destroying. No, but I mean, there's a real, there's, because, you know, the thing we talked about at the very outset is by the end of the film, it's very unclear where you're supposed to situate yourself in terms of what is the moral position, what is the ideological position taken by this oh, film. And I think it's better. <laughs> I personally don't like getting into that question because I don't. I think it's too complex. Yeah. And, and I don't think Bong Joon-ho, yeah. I think it's too reductive. Yeah. Um, is that what you told your son? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate, that's reductive. I sent him that's to his room when I wasn't game. happy with his opinion. <laughs> Um, they then they take a staircase further down and they run they run alongside a tunnel of cars driving through, but they're drenched in the water while these mm. other people drive through. And when the characters' voices kick back in, they're coming down a final set of stairs that ends up in their neighborhood. Mm. And it's only here that the tragedy really strikes. But Bong does an interesting thing. He has this kind of this this interlude before we're gonna really cross over and seeing what, what's happened here. So Ki Jung, the daughter, then asks, what are we going to do now? What's the plan? And you'll remember that that concept of you need a plan, what's our next move, that's a running trope throughout this film, mm. that you need to have a plan to change your circumstances, that you have to believe in a plan. And yes, as I said, it's a key idea in the film. Now, when her brother Ki Woo asks what his rich, successful friend would do, this is the person mm. at the start of the film, his sister screams that Min, that, 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 that rich friend, would never be in such a situation. And I think that says a lot about the film as well. And then the father says, but I've got my own plan. And that seems to placate the two children. 
as they move forward to their house. From here, they take more stairs down, they keep on moving further and further down, and they finally arrive at home until they see their belongings on the street and it's washing away with the floods. I think for me it ends, um, the, the tragedy of it ends, where you're inside their home, they're, they're chest deep in water now, in the basement, and when the daughter sits on the toilet to stop the lid blowing mm, up yeah, and, and, and stopping the sewage from... It's a really powerful And scene. she's sitting there and yeah. she's covered in, in, in this really gross sewage water. She then lights a cigarette and just sits there like it's futile to fight back. Um, but for me, that's the metaphor. It's the sewage mm. of the rich yeah. that they have to live in, you know? Like poor old Tim Robbins in Shawshank. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bong shows up. Now, I think something that's very important here is that it doesn't end just with that family because then Bong cuts to the, to the former housekeeper and her husband and how bad they've got it locked up downstairs. Mm. And he's smashing his face against the wall and covered in blood. Mm. And, and then he again uses that technique where he puts the husband to the husband to the husband and the children. Um, young Park Desun looking out the window at all the rain falling, but that same r rain is destroying these other people. Mm. Um, and, and that juxtaposition, I think, is, is really pretty amazing. And you, the, the symmetry in that entire scene, that word you used before, Bruce, that precision, mm. I think the scene is so precise. I think it's so well constructed um, and nothing's put out of place. I wouldn't shift a frame uh, in this entire run. And, and I think it's a, it's a lovely summary of the, the sadness on the, and the complexity of what we encounter for the two mm. hours and 15 minutes. I remember so. the scene in uh, when the, the sister sits on the toilet and also the way... The, the sewage kind of bubbles yes. in there, yeah. that I remember just feeling, wow, that is sort of just icky, just sitting there yeah, watching Yeah, but the expansion, the, the metaphor expanded is it's reached its lowest point and yeah. now it's bubbling up yeah. because this is the lowest yeah. point, you know, it's sad. Yeah. The fact that it did so well at the box office worldwide, what does that mm. say about the audience? Because you think about the film, yes, it's funny, and there's things that I think it's a family versus class, it's a family, I think it's also raising a new idea that there's a class consciousness Absolutely. growing oh, I, I that, think it that comes hasn't at the right time. Before. I think it taps into a mentality. Because the right? family is happy. They've got phones. Sometimes they're having trouble with Wi-Fi, but that's a very human experience. <laughs> we all have that. Yeah. They're hanging out. They're, you know, it's a happy little family. Yeah. But, but they're very poor, uh, and they don't know it. And there are people who are better than them and hate them. and you know. But there's definitely something we need to say about Parasite mm. that makes it better than almost any film by class in, say, the last decade, which is it might not have a clear message, which I think good films don't have clear messages. But at the very least, I, can, I think it overturns at least three kind of platitudes and obvious things that are like movies like Green Book or Wall Street will try and do in terms of race and class. So number one, it overturns the idea that you can find a solution if you just come up with some sort of simple way of... If you, if you think of, hard enough. Yeah, if, if, and if you think hard enough, you work hard enough, you'll, you'll, you'll come out okay. It, it, it knocks that on its head immediately, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Secondly, it overturns the, the other extreme, which is the platitude that there might not be a solution, but the poor people are intrinsically good and the rich people are intrinsically evil or bad. It just knocks that away, right? Because the rich people are not necessarily bad. They're just wealthy. Mm. The poor people are not necessarily good. They're just destitute. And I think if you think about just those two platitudes, and I think the last one is that class is not a function of people and individuals, but of massive historical structures and, and institutions. And an institutional analysis. And if you I think, think that's about what like it brings to how it. many 
mainstream movies that made $200 million can you think of that operate in some kind of discourse around class at that level of sophistication? Sure. I can hardly think of any. In my first watching, I didn't know it was about class. I, I could get uh, you know, the smell stuff made me yeah. go, hang on. But it yeah. wasn't until the stabbing that I went, hang on, this yeah, is about class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, it cemented a lot inside me. And I think on an emotional level, not on an intellectual level, I went, yeah, man, you stabbed that bastard. <laughs> and, and good for you. Hey, like it's it not, felt it's excellent. It's impossible not to, f- to be culpable and to be part of the you know, the desire to want but to do what this is it, stuff, what right? what if it's connecting um, a class consciousness to the idea of bullying or yeah. to the idea well, of something much more, things we can understand, which is, you know, at the end of the day, these people are going to yeah, screw but, you. But don't yeah. forget also, and uh, you know, I say this a lot, but don't forget that to, some, to a great extent, we live in a bubble as well, a bubble of ideology yeah. and politics. So you bring in a... Bring in a merchant banker, cinema via, and they go, well, whose side are you on, Park or Kim's? Okay, <laughs> like, do you want the knife in your heart or, or do you want, you know what I mean? Like, I also like that it rips up that traditional position, which is that the law is correct, and if you break the law, you're wrong. Yeah. The, the, you know, this film operates on a far more complicated idea of what, what are social codes, what are historical codes, not what is sanctioned by law. That, you know, Parasite tears that up immediately because the best characters in the film start taking other people's identities <laughs> and start, you know, faking their way through everything. And if we've if we've got a moment to finish on, what do you all make of the ending? When I first saw it, I did I thought the ending was sentimental, but now when I when I see it, I think it's perfect. I think it has oh, to be that way because I yeah. think that ending is kind of tragic in itself. In yeah. that in that. You know, you're no closer. You know, you know, you're no closer to the ending of this. You're no closer and to it's, the solution. And it's about loneliness, I yes. think, as well, and being disconnected. Mm. And that's really profound. But the family is broken as well. Yeah, yeah. like the family. That's, that's what's point. sad about the ending. Right. Yeah. The family no longer worked the way it did. And in fact, none of the families work. You take away the family, you take. You know, you've destroyed yeah. them. Maybe in, in family. Right, so, happy. and that sort of takes us back in a neat way to Texas. Well, the family's where, happy in that, even yeah. though they're insane. But they're happy, but they're insane. Yeah. Yeah, but in I think of Texas more the way sci-fi operates. Welcome to a world where, in a mm. world where the abattoir yeah. has gone, <laughs> yeah, 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 these yeah, yeah. four family members are going to find a new way. Hey, you should have done the voiceover for the initial promos. <laughs> so basically, we could have a single slogan for both movies, bloody thicker than water, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, if you had to choose, which one? Would you go with is your favorite? It's really hard. Like Texas Chainsaw has meant too much to me, so I'll have to just say Texas Chainsaw because wow. I just love it so much. I mean, you guys know that I'm a huge fan of Bong Joon Ho. Pretty much everything he's mm. ever done. Parasite's one of my favorite movies mm. in the last five years. I'd yeah. say. So, and I love Texas Chainsaw, but I'm, and we I'm should never going to listen, connect with it. To go that check extent. out other Bong Joon Ho. Oh, okay. And go oh, check oh, out other Toby Hooper things. Right? Oh, he Toby did some Hooper, wonderful yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, didn't he do Poltergeist as well? He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's a lot of absolutely. conversation about Because everyone says Spielberg Phantom directed it because his yeah. post yeah, was taking forever. But... It is also the best combination of an e- uh, uh, Spielberg sentimentality yep. with Toby Hooper's with solid horror. And yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like just an Spielberg awesome. Spielberg could never do solid horror. It's creepy he's tried to do I can't it watch that by myself. Like that creeps me out. That movie. Yeah. yeah. If I had to choose between the two, I'd say Parasite made me cry a lot. Yeah. Which I love when that happens, but Texas makes my jaw drop. You yeah. know, and I want. I look forward to the day I get to show a kid. You know, when I kidnap a child uh, <laughs> <laughs> and make them watch Texas Chainsaw. Can I say I had a, not kidnap any child, but I had similar experience. I was watching Texas, yeah. so I will say I currently teach Parasite in first year film studies. Yeah. For those of you listening, if you want to come do film studies, come do it at University of Sydney. Um, <laughs> I kept watching Texas and thinking, 
how can I put this on a course? And mm. I don't think I can. I would get into much trouble. But Why? I loved it so There's, much that I kept so thinking, much oh, academia God, I would love to. Yeah, but it's a very challenging film to watch. right? Yeah, and, right. And, and, you know, you can open yourself up to all sorts You'd of trouble. You need 90 minutes something. of trigger warnings. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's it for Film vs. Film for this episode. Please join us for the rest of our first series. We're going to a series of 12 exciting pair-upper films, and we're also going to continue by introducing parts of our life, remembering things that made us get into yeah. film. And especially the Western Suburbs. The Western Suburbs so, uh, video Of Sydney, stores. that meant so much to us. For now, we've made our second episode available to help whet your appetite. We look at how the mystery genre has evolved since the 1974 film of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express and the original Ryan Johnson film, Knives Out. Join us then for Film vs. Film. Take two. Film vs. Film. Film vs. Film.